Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Absolutely, please. Again, if you don't know that Jack has a heart for God, let alone a fire in his belly and in his soul to reveal the kingdom of God. You just, you don't know Jack. <laughs> yeah, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> We're in the, uh, the Psalms this summer, and as I've, I've made mention before, the Psalms are the Bible's affirmation. Really, God's invitation to get real with him. I hope you're starting to see that either on Sunday or in reading through the Psalms um, every day as we go through the summer. Songs like these. They're not produced or polished in a recording studio. They're honest and raw expressions of who we are and who God consistently reveals himself to be. In many ways, the message and music of the Psalms clashes with our disposition towards working so hard to be self-made and self-sufficient. And as we're in a, a new theme that I introduced last week, one of the implicit themes throughout the Psalms is the observance of the Sabbath. We tend to hear God's invitation to Sabbath to cease work and to rest as nothing more than a command, a divine mandate that if we honor it all, we honor one day a week. But as I mentioned last week, and I hope we'll continue to see today, an honest consideration of the soundtrack of the Psalms can expand our appreciation of the spirit behind the letter of this law. We can discover how the Sabbath is intended to be a rhythm and a practice every day of our lives. And our focus this morning, Psalm 91, I think, incorporates this theme in a very poignant way. It began, as you heard Jack read, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The theme of this song in the first two verses and repeated throughout is clear, seeking protection, finding security in the presence of the Lord. As you heard Jack read, if your Bibles are still open, and I hope they are, 
You might notice different images the psalmist uses to develop this theme. Shelter, shadow, refuge, dwelling place. These are repeated pictures not only in this psalm or even in the book of Psalms, but throughout the Bible, reaffirming relationship with God as a means of safety and sanctuary. Sanctuary. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word sanctuary, maybe Quasimodo and the hunchback of Notre Dame. Sanctuary! But sanctuary is a beautiful, powerful word. The secular definition of sanctuary is a place set apart from danger or hardship. But the root of the word is sanctus, set apart, pure, holy, sacred. A location was considered a safe haven because it was considered sacred, holy ground or space, set apart and pure from threat and harm. Sanctuary. Ancient traditions, countless stories in the pages of world and United States history underscore this unspoken understanding of the security and sanctity of designated places where individuals fleeing danger could always find refuge, could always hide in safety. Now, in the time of the Old Testament, the believers recognized the living God could not be contained in a structure made by human beings. They knew the Lord was omnipresent, present everywhere all at once. Yet, as their covenant God, the people also believed the Lord had graciously given them an earthly place of worship, a localized manifestation of his presence. The Lord had promised to be accessible to them in a unique and specific way when the people came to seek him there. That place was first, as you might remember, the portable tabernacle in the wilderness. And later, it was the temple in Jerusalem. Specifically, it was the inner room known as the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So, if you have your Bibles open, when the psalmist talks about dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, resting in the shadow of the Almighty, it's a reference to the innermost part of the temple, the place where God's very presence was believed to reside. Believers, so you understand what the, the psalmist intended, believers were invited to place themselves in their minds in the presence of the Lord in the most holy place, specifically to picture themselves in the place known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat, if you're not familiar or don't remember, was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, Adorning and overstretching over this cover were the wings of angelic beings called cherubim. When the psalmist, if your Bibles are open, speaks in verse 4 of finding refuge under his wings, this is not by accident. He's imagining himself in the innermost part of the temple, finding security and protection in the place where God's mercy was most tangible, where the blood of animals was sprinkled by the high priest each year on the Day of Atonement. The sin and the rebellion of the Israelites, the chaos and brokenness of this world would be covered, atoned for, through the representative sacrifice of an unblemished animal. I find refuge under the shadow of your wings. 
When the psalmist declares that he finds refuge in the Lord and then urges those of us who are seeking to live faithfully to God, us, to do the same, beloved, we're privileged. We're privileged to sing this song, to experience it in a new way. What I mean is we don't have to imagine ourselves in a temple made by human hands anymore. We don't have to picture ourselves before a representative piece of furniture in a man-made structure covered by the blood of a sacrificial animal. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, it's declared to us that the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, the high priest, and the sprinkled blood of a sacrificial animal were all merely copies of heavenly realities. Earthly copies, the writer to Hebrews goes on, earthly copies that have now been fulfilled in Christ, who has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Beloved, in Christ, through the perfect sacrifice of the cross, we don't have to imagine ourselves in the presence of God. In Christ, we have something the world can only dream of. As the psalmist declares it, we can have confidence in the protection of God that is so complete, so thorough, that nothing could ever cause us to feel fear again. No terror, no pestilence, no plague. As we face the challenges and hazards of this life, we can have peace of mind, of absolute certainty of our deliverance by the Lord, no matter what the threat or danger, be it the hunter's snare or the enemy's arrow. We're speaking of mysteries when we invoke this song. How do we understand this? I don't know if you know this, but with Psalm 91 in particular, it's become a practice still to this day for some Jews and Christians alike to use the words of this song in amulets that can be worn or on plaques that can be hung over the mantle of the house. They're used as some kind of magical formula to ward off any potential threat. In fact, interesting point, much of our contemporary fascination with, veneration of, and belief in guardian angels comes from the perceived promises of angelic protection you find in this song in verse 11. For many, this thinking comes that if we diligently pray Psalm 91 every day, before we leave the house, before we go to sleep at night, we won't be snared. We won't get a disease. We won't fall in battle. We won't experience evil. We won't lose anyone. We won't crash against a stone. We'll always be protected and delivered. Is that true? Is that right? If current events are any indication, the answer would definitely have to be no. Sure, we hear this promise of a glorious sense of joy and well-being, this invitation to embrace a mantle of security so strong, no worry, no anger, no anxiety can penetrate us. And yet, believers around the globe are struggling, suffering, and dying in the midst of a world hemorrhaging 
hemorrhaging at the hand of tribal wars and sectarian violence, leaving orphans in displaced communities, hemorrhaging at families and friends estranged by unemployment, the inability to find a job, a divorce, of marriages falling apart, at substance abuse and suicide, a world hemorrhaging as our own bodies, the surrender of our own bodies, our muscles, our senses, our minds surrender to depression, to cancer, dementia, just plain aging. And it's, it's not just our present circumstances that challenge this understanding of this psalm that I shared with you. It's also the witness of Scripture, of biblical history, that challenges perhaps this initial reading of Psalm 91. We're not sure when this song was written. You'll notice we don't have an author. We don't, can't get a real sense of when it was written. But imagine, regardless of when it was written, imagine singing this song as your country is invaded, as you find yourself living under the occupation of a hostile world superpower. Imagine hearing or singing the words of Psalm 91 during the time of the Babylonian exile. A time in Israel's history when her political and religious leaders were carried off into captivity or killed. When families were torn apart from each other and dispersed into different geographical locations. When the temple, the place every Israelite considered home, is reduced to rubble. Its lavish appointments desecrated or scattered and taken into foreign treasuries. How does this song change its tune when the world you once knew is turned upside down? When all that once grounded your sense of reality, of what is true and beautiful, of what can be counted on and hoped for, has been snatched away from you? When the sanctuary, the holy of holies, the place that was believed to shelter the very presence of God, is no more. How do we even begin to reconcile these incongruent realities? On the one hand, we have the joyful, hopeful confidence of the singer of this psalm. On the other hand, we have the harsh and sobering reflection through which we perceive not only our history, but the present world in which we live. Beloved, we should not hear or use Psalm 91 as a magical guarantee against the various deadly threats that we encounter on this journey of faith. The words of this song are not an absolute concrete promise for those with enough faith and trust to escape suffering, illness, and death. Devastating, painful things happen to good people. Even one who is perfect. Consider Jesus. We might remember during his time of testing in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus with the very words of this song. Did you know that? During the time of his testing in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus with the very words of this song. Satan challenged Jesus to throw himself down from the temple by trying to convince him, since Psalm 91 promised deliverance from suffering and death, God would surely deliver him. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
in this moment of temptation, we don't always get this in scripture, but in this moment of temptation, we get a unique bit of divinely inspired commentary on this song, which helped shed light on the meaning and application of this psalm to us. Instead of embracing the face value reading of Psalm 91 that Satan proposes as some sort of guarantee, guaranteed means of avoiding harm and death, Jesus, you'll recall, embraces the reality of the suffering and brokenness of this world that inevitably leads to death. He rejects this face value interpretation in the wilderness and he embraces the truth of the suffering, the brokenness that inevitably leads to death when the thorns penetrate his scalp, when the whip lacerates his back, when the rod strikes his head, when the denials come three times, when the betrayal and the abandonment is all around him, when the nails pierce his hand, when the spear severs his side, when he is killed by his enemies. Beloved, just as Psalm 91 was no guarantee that Jesus, the most godly person that ever lived, would avoid suffering and death, then we, as his followers, cannot, will not either. That sounds great theologically, but practically, in the day-to-day of our lives, How are we then supposed to hear this song? How are we to hear these words with any sincere hope, let alone to pray them with any real conviction? What exactly are we delivered from? If we know bad things happen to good people, people who sincerely love and trust God, how are we to understand when the psalmist declares, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Satan got Psalm 91 all wrong. Like him, we only learn later that the promise of Psalm 91, the promise of this song is fulfilled through the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Beloved, Psalm 91 wasn't Jesus' excuse for avoiding the cross. Psalm 91 was Jesus' very reason for going to the cross. God fulfills his promise of our ultimate protection and deliverance to those who trust in him through Jesus' willing embrace of all the suffering of this world, through his victorious defeat over sin, death, and Satan by rising from the dead. Indeed, in the suffering and resurrection of Jesus, we are rescued and saved from the deepest and greatest fears we have as human beings. What are the deepest and greatest fears we have universally as human beings? Universally. Our greatest and deepest fear is to be worthless. For our lives to have no value, no meaning. Our greatest and deepest fear as a human species is to be abandoned, to be rejected, discarded, and cut off from all life. Our greatest and deepest fear as humanity is to cease to exist, for death to be the last and final word for us. In Christ, through Jesus, 
we don't have to be afraid anymore. Paul, in the letter he writes to the Romans, expresses it this way. Man, this is, one of my, this is part of my life verse. I'm gonna get a little excited. Paul, in the, in the midst of it, and I wanna read the whole chapter to you, but I can't. Paul puts it this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, do you see the parallel images to Psalm 91? No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, if you need to, go to Romans 8 and read it, because Paul does not say that no harm will befall us. Paul says no harm will separate us from the love of Christ. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the crucial word of Paul's are in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things we are not saved from them, we are saved in them. The negatives are transformed into positives by a divine alchemy which turns lead into gold. Beloved, bad things happen to us. Bad things may happen to us. Pain, suffering, loss, devastation, tragedy. We may get knocked down. We may get knocked down again and again. We may come out bloodied, battered even. But in Christ, we will not break. But in Christ, we will not break. Through Jesus, we will not fade away. Thanks to Jesus Christ, we may fall, but we will rise again. The Lord our God remains steadfast in his love for us. He will never be shaken. He will always be there. Hear the words of the psalmist in light of the cross and resurrection. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Our God is stronger even than death. Our Lord Jesus Christ conquered the powers of sin, death, and the devil on the cross and rose to new life that we may be also resurrected with him. When we lose those we love, we grieve and we should grieve for death is terrible. Death is the problem. We mourn, but in a way we can also celebrate for our God promises to show us his salvation. Beloved, God is our refuge. God is our sanctuary. I had her name in. Maybe a couple of you were nodding, but I'm sure that there's still a handful of you out there who are saying, and this is honest, this is all well and good. But how does one get from there, this world with all its brokenness and suffering, to here, here, the lyrical joy and confidence of this psalm as a real possibility and not some idol whistling in the wind. 
How can a song like this one teach us to live as a people of faith rather than of fear? Have you been listening to the song? It's playing on repeat. And the answer that plays on repeat throughout this song is by dwelling in the Lord. As we've already discussed, Psalm 91, contrary to a popular interpretation, is not the Bible's version of 911. Psalm 91 is not the Bible's version of 911. You get it? I got everybody with me now? What I mean is, we can't treat our relationship with God like a number we just call in the face of an emergency, but otherwise we don't pick up the phone. How many of you have an intimate relationship with a 911 operator? Do you even know their name unless they tell you? That isn't what it means to dwell in the Lord. Beloved, God our Father is not a 911 operator. God our Father is not a fire escape or a panic room that we run to when we've exhausted all other possibilities and we've got nowhere else to go. But for many of us, when we say God is our refuge, that's practically how we live. God is our, in case of emergency, break glass. But think about it. If this is how we view God, if this is how we engage God, we will often be disappointed in the short term, right? We'll feel let down or disillusioned because when we broke glass, the magic didn't happen. And we'll also miss the longer term of this song, the bigger picture, the greater gift that God is offering us. As we've seen, Satan manipulates the words of this song, using them in a manipulative way that doesn't apply. The promise of God's presence, the assurance of God's salvation, isn't an excuse for us to live recklessly or ignorantly and be automatically protected. And yet for many of us, this is practically how we live. I've been forgiven. It's by faith alone, grace alone. Paul writes a lot of stuff wrestling with this, this temptation. We're covered by the cross of Christ. I'm, I'm good, so therefore I can just go ahead and live recklessly, ignorantly. And when there's a harvest crusade, or when there's an altar call, I'll just come back to the Lord. I'll recommit myself to Christ. The context of this song is not that. The context of this song, if we're listening carefully, is trusting God in all situations. All situations which results from constant, consistent attentiveness and regular dependence upon the relationship. In many ways, and I really want you to hear this, and it might shock us a little bit, so listen carefully. The way this psalm reads, if you read it again, the way this song plays, God's protection and deliverance is conditional. It's conditional. But it's not conditional in the sense that God holds anything back from us. Please hear this. It's not conditional in the sense that God holds anything back from us. It's conditional in the sense that we don't fully or even partially receive what he's offering if our lives are always closed off to him or our attention is always somewhere else. Do you hear that? It's not conditional in the sense that God holds back. It's conditional in the sense of if we are closed off in any way or our attention is somewhere else, we're not fully receiving, let alone partially maybe, what God is offering to us. 
Only those who trust, only those who love, who acknowledge and call upon God regularly will look to him. Trust in him and follow him when the threats and the storms come. Without a, without a posture of life that is less defensive and less reactive to God, without a, a life that's more devoted and submitted to him, on a daily basis, beloved, our default in the face of danger or threat or harm will always be to go our own way and not his. We see this practically in our lives. God's way is foreign to us. And we suddenly think it's going to be the first place we go if it's not part of our daily lives. We think that if we have a Bible and we never read it and study it, that somehow, all of a sudden, when we really need it, God's word is just suddenly going to come to our minds? We think that all of a sudden, our prayer life is going to become vibrant, we're going to feel, the, we're going to experience the, 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 the true nature of what prayer is if we never pray a prayer in our lives until that moment when suddenly we're driven to our knees and suddenly we say, help! And again, it's not that God isn't saying, I'm willing we have all these obstacles and barriers in front of us because we're deaf, dumb, and blind, because we've spent all our lives going elsewhere for help, relying on other things. Beloved, what I'm trying to say, what I believe Psalm 91 is saying, is in other words, we need to start living at home. We need to start living at home. Last week, I, I kind of drew out this idea of, this idea of, of dwelling. Remember in, in Psalm 90, Moses Moses' insight when he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place from generation to generation, that Moses, I believe, has this profound insight as he stands on the verge of the promised land that he will not enter, that a generation will not enter, and he realizes as good as the promised land is, the real promised land is God. God, you are my home. You've been our home from generation to generation. That insight in Psalm 90 is repeated here in Psalm 91. I believe the writer of this psalm prophetically leads his people, that means us, by the way, to this very same insight that God is our home. As I mentioned earlier, the, the author who first penned the words of Psalm 91 gazed upon the temple in Jerusalem as the visible witness of the truth of what he was writing. While it's not likely that he ever envisioned a day would come when the temple would be no more, interestingly, if you read the song, the temple, other than that one reference I gave you to wings, is not where he puts the emphasis of the song. He doesn't put it on a building or a location. Rather, what's repeated again and again is the believer's immersion or dwelling in God's presence. So think about this. I asked you before, imagine singing this song in later history of Israel. When the unspeakable happens, when the armies of Assyria and then Babylon destroy the temple, the words of Psalm 91 endure. They don't get thrown out because they point in that moment to a deeper and more profound truth. And it's a truth, by the way, that's still revealed today when a church or a synagogue is vandalized, abandoned, or burned to the ground. You see, in that moment, believers look at the rubble, and at that moment, they realize something. They and we realize the temple, the synagogue, the church cannot hold the presence of the Lord. It never could. It was never intended to. We begin to realize at that moment when everything seems to have fallen apart that God's intention, his purpose 
has always been to take up residence in a different dwelling place. One that is more permanent, even as it is more fragile at the same time. From the very beginning of creation to the end of life as we know it, the real sanctuary of the Lord has always been intended to be the sacredness of the human heart. It's always intended to be the true dwelling place of our Father. It was always intended to be the intimacy of human flesh. Suddenly, Psalm 91 takes on a prophetic light as it enables us to see, to marvel at the deeper work of the incarnation, of the coming, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once again, we come back to Paul. Paul puts it this way in another letter, in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul puts it this way when he says, don't you know? Don't you get it? Don't you know you yourselves are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? My brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have to go to the temple anymore. We don't need to run or flee to a church or another holy place to find refuge. We don't need to search for or build a sanctuary from evil. For we have been sanctified, Paul says, by Christ. By the way, did you catch that? Sanctified by Christ. Covered by the blood of Christ, we become the sanctuary of God. We are safe and secure in Jesus. By his spirit, God has made his home in us. This is from where our confidence comes. By living at home. By dwelling with our God. This is the gospel. This is the invitation God makes to us. The world is crazy, this song admits. The world is nuts. There's deadly pestilence, despair, war, famine, danger, the terror of night. We could say amen thousands of years later. But God comes to us in Christ and says to us all, let me come into your life. Let me come into your life and make my home with you. Abide in me. Let me take up residence in all of your life. Let me establish my presence there. Make your home with me and live in peace. Find security, protection from fear and death. Beloved, are we living at home? Are we living at home? You got to hear this. God doesn't want to be our second residence. God doesn't want to be our vacation house. The Sabbath isn't about a place we go to, the church service we come to once a week, the retreat we go on every couple of months, the time off maybe we take for a few weeks once a year. The Sabbath is about making God our home, our dwelling place, every day of our existence, in every room of our lives. Probably one of the most simple and yet profound books I ever read that, that drew this out for me, and I'm gonna commend it to you. Go on Amazon, get it, get it today if you've never read it before, is the book by Robert Munger, his simple mental exercise with this truth of Psalm 91 that's entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. Robert Munger, get it. Beloved, are we living at home? Are we living at home or have we gotten used to living on our own? Have we gotten used to living on our, on our own? You know, you get your own place. It's kind of nice, right? You get your own place, you got your own rules, got your own habits, you got your own sense of security. 
I mean, can we, let's, be, let's, let's talk truth. It's hard to let go, to go back when we're used to living on our own, let alone living at the beach. When we're living on our own, it looks great. It sounds great. Feels great. My kids can't wait to live on their own. It's all they dream of. And we're dreaming too. <laughs> living on our own sounds great. Feels great. Looks great. Until the storms come. The howling of the wind. The crashing of the rain. Living on our own looks great, sounds great, feels great. Until we find out we really are living at the beach. Until we find out we're living on sand. The sands of time. The sands of history that ultimately shift, shuffle, and wash away. Are we living at home, beloved? Don't care how old you are today. Are you willing to move back in with your dad? Move back in with my dad? Are you willing to move back in with your dad? Willing to move back in with your brother Jesus? Are you willing to move back in with your roommate, the Holy Spirit? To truly, honestly live at home again? I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, much like when you were the age of my kids, I was there at one point, just wanted so badly to live on your own that sometimes you snuck out of the house. Anyone ever sneak out of the house? It's kind of scary, not to freak anybody out if you're grandparents or aunts and uncles or parents, but there's actually, with the, the increase in technology, an even more disturbing way for kids to sneak out of the house. Many kids have a Facebook account, if that, or a Twitter account. You've heard of these things. And, you know, as parents, you think, well, I'll just monitor their Facebook account or their Twitter account. I'll know who their friends are. I'll know what they're up to. But what parents don't realize, and this is where the kids knowing more about the technology than you do becomes rather treacherous, is kids all over the place have dual Facebook accounts, dual Twitter accounts. They have the one they show you. Oh, I know all their friends. That's so lovely. Oh, that's so nice what they said on Twitter. Or what the, oh, that's what they're up to. But you don't know about their secret Facebook account. Their secret Twitter account, that's the one you find and you're like, where have they been living? They're not living at home. They're sneaking out of the house. And they don't even have to actually leave the house. Beloved, are we sneaking out of the house with the Lord? Are we living a double life? We've got our church life. I can't tell you how this shocks me in the church, brief aside, you know, this is the place where we're supposed to get real with each other and get real with God, and yet it, does, it, it seems like all the time in the church where all of a sudden it's at the very end when the marriage is falling apart that people suddenly go, yeah, yeah, we've been struggling for months. Or the person who's been struggling with something going on in their family, something else, again, oh, it's been months, but I, did, I didn't want to burden anybody. I was embarrassed. I didn't want to put that on the prayer chain. I didn't want to ask for help. Beloved, God knows where we live. Unlike our parents, unlike us as parents, our father knows when we're not living at home. And he doesn't cross his arms and say, how dare you? He, his posture is, as Jesus presents it in that wonderful par parable, he's standing on the horizon, looking, waiting, inviting us to come home. The security, the gratitude, the freedom from fear invoked by Psalm 91 is a byproduct of a rhythm, a practice, of a habit of abiding in the Lord, 
of taking these words of scripture, as Jesus once said, and putting them into practice. This is how we build a house that weathers the storms in a world that seems to be falling apart at the seams. By making God's unconditional love and ultimate provision our home security. Beloved, God wants to be our home. No one else can bring us peace. By the love of the cross of Christ raised on Calvary, we are assured that God will not leave us or forsake us, that Jesus Christ alone can secure and shelter our wounded hearts. Through the witness of an empty tomb, we have a living hope, not just when our last breath on this earth comes, but even now that Christ and Christ alone can redeem us, save us from the sting of death and raise us to new life. My brothers and sisters in Christ, as we find ourselves, this is where I'm living right now, and I need to make, go live at home. As we find ourselves saddened, humbled, and overwhelmed by all that's happening in our world, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, in Gaza, in Iraq, within our own nation, in Ferguson. Let us together in the midst of this live at home. Let us dwell together in the shelter of the Most High, in the midst of our own security systems. In the midst of our own emergency procedures, Christ alone is our refuge, our help in times of trouble. Only Jesus can lead us and teach us to love our way through the absurdity of life and the darkness of history. Therefore, beloved, let us dwell, let us rest in the shadow of the Almighty by making God in Christ our home and our security. Amen.